God, as we prepare our own hearts to come to Your Word, Lord, we know that apart from Your Spirit, into a brick wall. And so I pray, Lord, that You would impart understanding to us, help us to understand, but at the same time, do not let us be merely hearers. Help us to be doers. Oh God, prevent us from falling into a state of mediocrity. Prevent us from slipping into a state where Your Word is it doesn't do anything to us. Oh God, our flesh is so weak, but Your Spirit is so strong. And so we pray, Lord, that You would move among us, that You would help us to see our need for You, our need for Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are. And help us, O Lord, help us to trust more fully in You. Help us to see Your sovereign goodness, Your sovereign grace, Your sovereign power. And teach us, O Lord, teach us with Your Word to yield our lives in submission to You. O God, through Your Spirit, may we hear the Chief Shepherd preaching to us today. May we hear Him speaking to us. May we hear His voice and follow Him as His sheep as He nourishes us with Your Holy Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 today. That was three lessons in chapter 1. Have I ever preached a uh, a sermon through a a chapter that quickly? I'm not sure. Uh, That was a pretty quick quick breeze through chapter 1. But uh, we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 today as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. And as we begin uh, today, I want to start out by defining some terms that you might not be familiar with. Maybe you are, uh, but maybe you're not. And then I want to respond to some of the misconceptions or misunderstandings that are associated with these terms, especially in times like these. And you'll know exactly what I mean when we get to these terms. Let me start out with this. We are a complementarian church. We are complementarians. Now that does not mean that as soon as you walk through the door, we're going to shower you with compliments, although who knows, we, we, we might, right? Uh, no, when I say that we are a complementarian church, what I mean is that we as a church recognize that God has created men and women for the same purpose, created that being for His glory, right? Men and women alike are created for God's glory, but we recognize that He created men and women with different functions. So they are not, women and, uh, and men are not uh, different in value, They're same value in, in God's sight. We, we, we all have the image of God, but we have different functions. Now it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand or to recognize why a position like this would be extremely uh, controversial, to put it nicely, in our day and age. Uh, when the culture, driven by the feminist movement, which is driven by the progressive movement, which is a satanic movement, is trying to blur every distinction out there that exists between men and women, 
We believe that the Scriptures very clearly teach that there are not only inherent distinctions between men and women, but that men and women were designed to function in a manner that is complementary. What I mean by that is that men and women were designed to complete, not to compete with one another. In the beginning, God created man but God created him in a state that was less than ideal. He, for, throughout the, the days of creation, he, he kept saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. Oh, this is very good, right? But one thing wasn't good, and that was that man was alone. And God declared that it was not good that man be alone. And note that he only did that. That only happened after Adam Uh, had all the animals in the animal kingdom come to him where he named them, where he unquestionably observed that each species had a male and female. It was only then that God uh, acted on his declaration that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God created the woman from the man's rib. Only then was the man's condition good and complete. Uh, The woman was to be his helper. She was designed in the beginning to fulfill that high and holy purpose. In God's created order, this never changed. That is still the case today. And that's made clear throughout the Scriptures. God has given some roles to men, and He has given some roles or, or functions to women. Uh, This applies socially or or civilly. This applies within the home. And this applies within the church. For example, the sons of Aaron uh, were the ones who were to be designated as priests in the tabernacle or or in the temple. Uh, That position was not to be filled by women. Uh, And that in no way, in no way does that imply that women are in any sense lesser than men. It just means that God gives some roles to men and some roles to women. Uh, And and we see this carry into the the New Testament church as well. Uh, One of the most obvious places we see it is in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and, and Titus, where we find the qualifications for an elder or overseer or or pastor, uh, where we see that it's actually assumed that the elders will be men. Paul says, for example, that the, uh, the elder is to be a husband of one wife or a, a, a one-woman man, but he doesn't say that the elder must be uh, the wife of one husband, because it's assumed that this would be a role designated for men. But in an age in which feminism has tried to show that women and men are equal in every way, that women can do everything that men can do. The Scriptures still maintain that women were never designed to do everything that men can do, and men were never designed to do everything that women do either. And we see that in the the arena of sports, don't we? When a man uh, goes out there and competes with women, he doesn't have to be a great uh, male athlete. In fact, he can be very mediocre uh, in terms of being a professional male athlete. But when he goes into female sports, he can dominate. We've seen that happen. And this only proves that men and women were not created 
to do the same things biologically or, or spiritually within, within the church. But see, this is where the, the sports especially is really where the feminist movement is actually revealed to be a movement that degrades women. Because if men can become women and can do everything that women can do and women can do everything that men can do, well, the fact is that your average male makes a better female than, uh, <laughs> than women. But we understand how ridiculous that is. That's why just a generation ago they were making comedy sketches about this kind of stuff. And now it's reality where you get canceled if you try to contest it. You have to be crazy to deny the fact that men and women are not uh, able to do the same things. But again, this in no way implies that women are lesser, uh, not in any sense. And we see that God actually uses many women in Scripture in mighty, even spectacular ways throughout Scripture. One of the things that, the, that uh, you'll see in the modern day is you know, that, that women should be able to do the same things that men do in the church. And that if you hold this position of complementarianism, it's that you hate women and you have this idea that God hates women. No, we have this idea that men and women have different functions. And we see that God uses women in great ways in Scripture. I mean, the obvious first name that comes to name would be Mary, right? Mary was, uh, was a great example, the, the mother of Jesus. Uh, a man could not have done what Mary did. And praise the Lord for that. He's glorified by that. Or what about Ruth? Ruth is another one. She's a wonderful example of a woman who was faithful to the Lord in a time when the culture around her, the world around her, was faithless. I remember she existed around the time of the judges. But today we want to consider yet another woman from the Old Testament who was a model of incredible, incredible faithfulness in a time when Israel had turned from God. And the woman I'm speaking about, of course, is Hannah. We've seen that the Lord had closed her womb. This is what we learned in in chapter 1. The Lord closed her womb, causing her to be barren as an illustration, as kind of a word picture of Israel's spiritual barrenness. And yet, while her affliction did bring her very, very low, it never brought her so low that she couldn't pray. And so she prayed, and she prayed, and she asked God to give her a son whom she would give back to the Lord in devotion and service. And her prayers were heard, we've seen. Uh, her prayers were answered by God. She gave birth to Samuel, and when he was just three years old, he was weaned, and she brought him, Hannah brought him to the, temp, uh, the tabernacle in Shiloh, where even at three years of age, he worshiped the Lord. Now, this, this past week, I, I did some digging around Scripture, and I tried to find somebody who worshiped the Lord earlier than Samuel did, and the only example I could find was John the Baptist who leapt in his mother's womb to be in the presence of Jesus. Uh, But aside from that, I think Samuel is the youngest child to worship the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. We, We love seeing children worship the Lord, don't we? There's something beautiful about a child worshiping the Lord. But let me ask you this. How influential 
do you think Hannah was in him knowing how to worship God at just three years old? I think it goes without saying that she was extremely, extremely influential uh, because Hannah herself was a very godly woman. And there's no other explanation for why Samuel was a godly child. Now you might say, well, it's because God called Samuel. Okay, yes, there is that. But God is not only a God of ends, He's a God of means. And so He gave her, or He gave Samuel, uh, a mother who was very godly, who taught him how to worship before he was even three years old. Now, in our previous lesson, we touched on how difficult it must have been for Hannah to to leave Samuel in Shiloh at the tabernacle in Eli's care. And as you consider that, you think, wow, she must have just been devastated. She must have been so sad. And yet, if we want to get a glimpse at exactly how she felt about leaving Samuel in Eli's care at the tabernacle, it's actually given to us immediately when we come to the first passage of, uh, of, first, uh, of second, the second chapter of 1 Samuel, where we find maybe the most intelligent, theologically precise, biblically sound prayer or, uh, or song of praise written uh, in the Old Testament, May, at least by any woman. By any woman. It's, it's up there with Mary's song of praise that we find in Luke's Gospel, uh, where, where she learned of God's plans for her life. But in, in this passage that we come to today, Hannah writes this beautiful, beautiful song of praise to the Lord. Now let's not miss the fact that Samuel has a very specific purpose in God's plans for Israel. He is prayer and her willingness to devote him to the Lord's service. Uh, Samuel wasn't the only one who worshipped in Shiloh. So did his mother Hannah. And so now we come to this song that she composed, and I hope you see the richness of it. But what we learn from her prayer, and it's the point of this, this prayer, this song, is that we can praise God for His salvation, His sovereignty, and for the sureness of His purposes being fulfilled. In fact, not only can we praise Him for these things, but we should, we ought to praise Him for these things. In fact, all of humanity ought to worship and praise God for His salvation, for His sovereignty, and for the sureness of His purposes coming to pass. So her song begins by praising God. In the first section, she begins by praising God for His salvation. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Friends, it makes such a difference. It makes such a difference when we cast our cares on God, going to Him in prayer, knowing that He cares about us, knowing that He hears us, and knowing that He is a God who just doesn't sit back and do nothing. No, He's a loving Father who desires to bless us. How can a person not find comfort in knowing that the God of the universe would stoop to hear us? How can a person not be amazed that God loves to shower His children 
with good gifts. Gifts that they could never earn. Gifts that they could never deserve. Gifts that could only come from His hand. Good, good gifts. One of the beautiful things we learned this past week in our study of J.I. Packer's Knowing God book was that God does much more than just forgive His children. He does forgive His children. But He goes above and beyond even that. He adopts us as His own and relates to us not as a judge who has the authority to condemn us, but as a Father who loves us and who cares for us and who provides for us. And as an earthly father loves to show his love and his affection to his children, we have to know this, every earthly father is imperfect. And so they can only love their children imperfectly. But God, as our heavenly father, he loves us perfectly. He himself is perfect. As such, he loves to hear our prayers. He loves to answer our prayers. And he always answers our prayers perfectly in the best possible way and sometimes that's just that's doing giving us what we ask for sometimes it's saying wait a minute i've got something better for you but either way he hears and he answers our prayers and hannah hannah has this boldness in her prayer that is is just rarely seen in the Old Testament. She has this incredible uh, boldness before God. The last time we saw her pray back in chapter 1, we saw that she was praying as she wept bitterly. And her husband Elkanah came and, and said to her, why is your heart sad? When Eli had seen her praying, he thought she was drunk because of her condition, the way that she, she appeared. But she described herself to him not as a, as a drunk woman. She, in fact, she refuted the idea that she, that she was drunk. But she said that she is a woman oppressed in spirit. She's so low at that point. But she's no longer, now here in chapter 2, she's no longer oppressed in spirit. Her heart is no longer filled and overflowing with sadness. Why? What has changed? Is it not because the Lord Himself has both heard and answered her prayer? And thus she begins her song of, of praise with the words, My heart exalts in the Lord. If you wanted to translate it more accurately, uh, eventually I plan on moving to the Legacy Standard Bible uh, where my Lord or where the Lord gets translated Yahweh because that's what it actually says. So more accurately, she says, my heart exalts in Yahweh. Now let's understand this much. She's not talking about her physical heart. She's not talking about the organ that, you know, that sits in her chest. The way that we understand a heart to be in, in a medical sense in our time. In the Bible, the heart actually represents uh, the center of a person. Uh, and, and it's out of the heart that the emotions flow. The will flows. Uh, the thoughts flow. Everything comes from the heart in biblical terminology. So when she says, my heart exalts in Yahweh, she means that her whole self, the whole center of her being, is overflowing with emotions and with, with good and holy will and with uh, holy thoughts, holy and righteous thoughts. Her heart, she moves on, she Yahweh. 
about what He has done for her. But it's more than just her heart. She moves on. She follows it up and she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. In the Lord. And that's a little bit confusing for us, right? Like, what horn is she talking about? Is she talking about a trumpet? Um, some translations actually replace the word horn with strength. Uh, I'm not crazy about that because that causes us, causes us to actually lose the image that Hannah has in mind. So it's not a brass instrument that she has in mind. No, in, in the culture that she lived in, she lives in the ancient agricultural world, right? Where, where wild animals uh, coexisted not far from human beings, uh, they would have understood that a triumphant beast will hold its head and its horn high over a defeated adversary as sort of a sign of victory. Now some may think that this is a reference to some sort of victory over Peninnah, who of course was Elkanah's second wife and who bore children prolifically. In fact, her name meant uh, prolific. Uh, but I think she simply means, when she says this, I think she simply means that the Lord had lifted and exalted her as she had humbled herself before Him in faith and with her prayers. If anything had been defeated, it was her sense of oppression and lowness and sadness that had filled her heart. Uh, that is no longer the case with her anymore. Now she is joyfully triumphant. So she speaks uh, of her heart. She speaks of her horn, so to speak. And third, her mouth. She says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Again, translated a little bit more literally, she says, my mouth is wide against my enemies. And that really is, is difficult for us to understand, so I understand why they, they kind of transliterate it. But the image there is of a, a victorious animal. Um, it seems to be what she had in mind. A victorious like lion opening its mouth and, and showing its teeth to any adversaries that might decide to become uh, stupidly brave and approach him. Um, so, she's victorious. And like a lion... She, she's opening her mouth wide to show her victory. She's using language that we would actually expect to see used by a warrior, wouldn't we? We should see that these are, these are qualities that we didn't see in her in chapter 1 when she saw herself as a woman who was oppressed in spirit. And it's all, as she says, because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves whenever we come across the term salvation is salvation from what? Does she mean like her soul being saved? Or what exactly does she mean? The answer in this case appears to be despair. He has saved her by lifting her out of despair, lifting her out of a state of hopelessness, uh, removing her sad heart from her. She understood that it is Yahweh. It is the Lord who lifts up. It is Yahweh who exalts. It is Yahweh who comes to the aid of His people and either rescues them from despair or gives them the grace and the strength to endure whatever circumstances they might be in. And here's what we need to keep in mind. That as great 
as she has been blessed by Yahweh, and she has been blessed greatly by Yahweh, she has still no idea what a gift of grace her son Samuel is. Not yet. Not yet. She hasn't seen what he is going to do, what he is going to become. She will, perhaps, before her time on earth is through, but at this point, she has no idea that Samuel will be the one whom the Lord, whom Yahweh uses to lift Israel out of Israel's spiritual barrenness. God had not only drawn near to her, God had not only exalted her, but through Samuel, God would draw near to Israel and cause Israel to be exalted among the wicked nations that surrounded them. Notice that Samuel isn't the cause of her joy. That's not what she says. If you look at verse 1, she says, because I rejoice in your salvation, that's the cause of her joy. Samuel's not. Now you might say, huh, that's kind of strange. Why isn't Samuel her joy? Well, make no mistake about it. She's joyful about Samuel. But she's got her priorities straight. She recognizes that Samuel is a gift from God. She knew that. But her affections remain steadfast on the giver of good gifts himself rather than on the gifts. Hannah undoubtedly adored Samuel. But he was not her salvation. Yahweh was. And what a good Reminder, what a blessed reminder for us to focus our affections and our praise on God instead of lowering our affections and basing our feelings and our affections on the gifts that He has given us. Now, every gift He gives us from His hand is good, and we can rejoice in those gifts, but we must not take our affections away from the gift giver. That's all I'm saying. The Lord is the giver of every good gift. He is the answer. He's what Hannah needed. He's what Israel needed. And He's what we need as well. So let us never settle. Let us never lower our affections and value the blessings or the gifts that the gift giver gives us more than we love and value and esteem God Himself. When that happens, when you take your eyes off of the the gift giver and your affections get set on the, the blessings, the gifts instead, that's actually idolatry. That doesn't please God. That doesn't honor God. That breaks the first commandment. But here's what happens when we lower our affections and become obsessed with the gifts instead of the gift giver. What happens is we set ourselves up to be completely disappointed with God. Because we will come up with some, in in our flesh, we will come up with some idea, some notion of what God should give us or shouldn't have given us. Uh, But that wasn't the issue with Hannah. That wasn't even an issue at all on her radar. And so let us not have that as an issue for ourselves either. May our affections remain steadfastly fixed on the giver of every good gifts. And let us remain thankful for His gifts, of course. But our affections, may they be centered on the gift giver. We saw how Hannah's prayer earlier had used language from Israel's exodus 
to, uh, from Egypt. And when we see that she has used uh, similar language here in this poem, in this prayer, this song, once again, if we compare what she has said with the, the song of triumph that we read in Exodus chapter 15 when God led the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, and they sang this song of their deliverance from Egypt. They said in verses 1 and 2, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. And actually, if you go through verse 18, which is where that song ends in chapter 15 of Exodus, you'll see all kinds of parallels, all kinds of similarities between Hannah's song here and the song that Moses and the Israelites sang about the Egyptians back in Exodus chapter 15. But the point is, first of all, Hannah knew the Scriptures. But more importantly than knowing the Scriptures, she knew God. She understood that God was a God who was faithful to His people and to His promises, just like Moses and and the Israelites had understood that after their deliverance as well. Just like they were ecstatic from being saved from the Egyptians, Hannah was ecstatic over God's work in pouring out His grace on Hannah. And so there's an acknowledgement and an adoration of the fact that He alone is able to do what He does. He alone is able to bless and to save the way that He does. So first she says in verse 2, she says that God is holy. And not only that He's holy, but that there is none who are holy like Him. There is no other lowercase g God that compares to God. Capital G. That is to say that He is separate from His creatures, but it also relates to God's uh, moral righteousness. He's his, His incomparable moral perfection. Because God is holy, here's what we need to know. Because God is holy, everything that He plans and intends for His people is holy. Everything. God is never cruel. God is never less than good. Even in judgment, He's, he's not cruel. Instead, he's, he's just. He's perfectly just. Now, that's something that should terrify those who defy God. That's something that should scare those who continue to rebel against God and to deny His kingship over all of creation. But to those who know God and who love that there isn't even an ounce, not even a drop of cruelty or corruption in God's character, we love the fact that God is holy. Richard Phillips says this, he says, quote, "...knowing that God's purpose in your afflictions must be holy, pure, and good, you can be comforted by Hannah's example that the day of God's deliverance will come for you in the manner, of, in the manner and timing of His choosing." End quote. "...indeed there is none besides you," she says as she continues. "...nothing and nobody compares to God." He's in a class of His own. He's in a category of His own. None can thwart His hand. Every other hand in all of creation can be thwarted. But God's cannot be. No one can prevent Him from fulfilling His... No wonder, she says, nor is there any rock 
like our God. And of course, the image of a rock is very symbolic. It symbolizes God's steadfastness, His, His permanence, His faithfulness to protect His people and for them to stand upon. So you can trust in God because He's not sinking sand. He's a rock. You too can stand on Him because He cannot be moved. You can stand on Him because He cannot be overthrown. He cannot be thwarted. And with this, with this line, she kind of transitions from praising God for the salvation that He brings to praising Him for His sovereignty. Let's continue in verses 3-8. to eight. She sings, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world upon them. Now it is vitally important for people to know that nothing escapes God's awareness. Nothing gets past Him. Nobody can, can pull the fleece over His eyes, so to speak. Yahweh is a God of knowledge. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from Him. Past, present, future. He knows the future as well as He knows the past. All things are known by Him. Nothing is unknown. Nothing is left to His speculation. Nothing. He's a God of knowledge. And it's in light of His knowledge that He knows what is best. And not only does He know what is best, but He acts in such a way that achieves His sovereign will and glorifies Himself and works for the greatest good of his people. Now, how could the Bible make a promise like we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? How could the Bible make that promise if God did not know the future inside and out, backwards and forwards, entirely? It couldn't. It couldn't make that promise. Because we'd have to say, well, something might happen that God didn't know would happen. And that's where something like open theism becomes an absolute heresy. Because every promise of God is contingent upon His knowledge of the future. Of the past, of the present, and the future. And that's the way that God is. He's a God of knowledge. When a Christian really understands that, when you really start to wrap your mind around that concept, that's when God's sovereignty becomes a pillow that you can rest your head on at night. Whatever I'm facing in life, God's got it. It's going to work out for my good. Whether that's a case of salmonella poisoning like I had this past week, or whether it's whatever, God's going to work it out for for my greatest good somehow. Somehow, He's going to use this circumstance to make me more like Christ. He knows how that's going to work out. I don't, but I trust in Him. That's good enough. I'm going to sleep. Good night. 
That's the way it works, right? When you understand that this, this is how God relates to you if you are His child, when all you deserved is His just wrath, how small, how insignificant all the problems, all the pains, all the difficulties, even your hardest circumstances become. Hannah knew these things now because of the afflictions that she had previously endured. She knew these things because she knew God. When a person knows God, it humbles them. If you know even the smallest thing about God, it's going to humble you. And when that happens, boasting becomes such a ridiculously absurd, even fickle thing, doesn't it? That's why God is opposed to the proud. The only reason somebody would be, would be proud, the only reason that somebody would boast in themselves is that they don't know God. And we have a whole month of, of pride coming up, Christian. So, so this is your chance to follow the counsel that God gave through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9.24, he says this, he says, Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You want something to boast in? Boast in the fact that you know the Lord. Don't boast in something about yourself. God is opposed to the proud. Which is what makes it so sad that we have a whole month in our country where it's promoted just everywhere you look. It's so sinful. Not only are they promoting sin, but the fact that there's pride about it. How sinful is that? It just shows how far our culture is right now from Yahweh from knowing Yahweh. What's the point of boasting when you can't even guarantee that you're going to be around after your current breath? Can you guarantee 100% that you're going to be here in five minutes? You can't. Nobody can. We don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. But God does. Because God is a God of knowledge. Because God is sovereign. He's the one who's working out His purposes and plans. And so you can make all the purposes and plans you want, but if they come into conflict with God's plans and purposes, guess what? Your plans and purposes ain't happening. Hannah describes what God does when His enemies try to rise up against Him. The bows of the mighty are shattered while the humble are strengthened. The man that had everything in the world to eat suddenly would do anything for just a piece of bread to put in his stomach, while those who were destitute, those who were starving, are provided for. Those whose wombs were barren give birth to seven children, while the womb of the woman who gave birth to many suddenly languishes. You see the pattern of of comparing and contrasting here undoubtedly. And we see here at the end of of verse 5 that it it gets pretty personal. Now, commentators and scholars have all kinds of explanations for what she means when she says this thing about uh, seven children being born. Uh, Some say that, you know, okay, she she must have, have sung this, she must have written this some point down the road, very much later on in life when she had had seven children. I mean, okay, um... 
That's possible, maybe. Uh, Others will say that maybe she was expecting to have seven children when all was said and done. Maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. It seems like a stretch. But the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that seven in the Bible is just, it's a perfect number. It represents fullness. And that since this is a song, this is poetic, right? It's prose. Uh, she was just poetically saying that Samuel's birth represented the fullness of God's blessing in her life. I think that's probably what she meant there. But the point is, without getting too caught up in all the minutiae and all that stuff, the point is that God is to be both feared and praised. He's to be feared because He's capable of casting down the proud. He's capable of casting down and, and, and bringing low the violent and the powerful. And He's to be praised because He's capable of exalting anyone that He desires to exalt. He's capable of exalting the humble. He's capable of exalting the meek in spirit. God is to be feared because in a dog-eat-dog world, guess what? He's got every dog on a leash. And He loves to display His glorious power and His majesty by exalting unlikely, lowly people. God is sovereign over all things. No one can stop Him. No one can thwart Him from working out His plans and purposes. And that's why the mountains quake at His presence. That's why the nations tremble before Him. Because He will make His name known. Whether we like it or not, He will do it. And nobody can resist Him. And nobody can thwart Him from keeping all of His promises and plans. Job 26 Verses 11 to 14 says, The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Just the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? All we can catch is just the slightest glimpse of how powerful, how mighty, how majestic, how glorious God is. Does this sound like a God that you'd want to mess around with? Does this sound like a God that you'd want to shake a fist at? He's sovereign over all of creation and the created order. All of it submits to His decrees. He's sovereign over life. He's also sovereign over death. In verse 6, Hannah observes that Yahweh kills and Yahweh brings to life. He brings a person to the grave and He has the power to resurrect from the grave. Now, now is she speaking of a, a literal resurrection or is she talking in more of a, a poetic sense, like metaphorically? And I'd say that the Scriptures reveal that it's both. It's both. Uh, Hannah was in a, in a low, barren place, literally. The, the Lord lifted her from it, 
figuratively speaking, of course. He causes one person to be poor. He causes another to be rich. He brings one person low. He exalts another person. But we should also know that there's a very literal sense in which the dead will be raised from the grave one day. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, literally in both instances, that Jesus Christ is Lord. With or against their will. They will submit to His sovereign decrees. We don't have a choice in it. They'll do it whether they want to or not. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The grave is not final for anyone. Those who are born again, those who have put their faith in Christ alone, will only die once but they will be raised to everlasting life those who have been born uh, those who haven't been born twice will die twice they'll be resurrected only to be judged and cast into hell for eternity and god has both the power and the authority not to mention god has the will to do these things now you might say how can these things be How could God bring someone back from the dead? And the answer is here at the end of verse 8 where he says, where, where Hannah says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. That's just a poetic way of saying that the earth and all of its inhabitants, everything that dwells therein, all of it belongs to the Lord. He has power and authority over it all. He's sovereign over everyone and everything. He's sovereign over individuals. And He's sovereign over nations. He reigns supreme over them all. And Hannah knew these things about God. Not only from her experience, but it's very clear that she also knew the Scriptures. She surely knew the stories of how God had related graciously to her forefathers, but now she also knew Him as a God who is a Savior of the hopeless, the broken, the weak and reviled, who would humbly submit to Him in obedient faith. Do you know And I mean know, not know about, but do you know this God? You ask yourself that question, do do I know this God? Because if you thought that it's already gotten real, it's about to get really real. And the most important thing that you can do, friends, is to know this God of whom the Bible testifies And when I say no, again, I don't mean know about. That's part of it. But I mean know Him. I mean love Him. I mean pursue His ways. Walk with Him. Strive to give glory to His name. Do you know this God? Hannah has praised God for His salvation. She has praised God for His sovereignty. And now her song ends with some strong words of wisdom as she praises Him for the sureness of His purposes. And you must know that His purposes will come to pass. They are as certain as yesterday. They will come to pass. Let's continue. Verses 9 and 10. She sings, He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. 
For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Now this is really the high point of the song. This is what you would call the, the pinnacle of the song. It's summar- but it also summarizes the, the message that really we're going to see play out in the books of First and Second Samuel. Not by might shall a man prevail. That's really the theme of these two books. Uh, can we remember that when, when, you know, when the wicked rise up, that man does not prevail by strength, by might? Can, can we remember that when the wicked seem to be prospering? Man devises all sorts of wicked plans, but a man shall not prevail by might. Why not? Because man is not sovereign over his own destiny. God is the one who sovereignly rules over all. A giant man named Goliath would learn this lesson the hard way, doesn't he? He was a mighty, he was a feared warrior clothed in the best armor, armed with the best weapons in the world at the time. But David would say to Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45-47, to he'll say, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. Keep in mind, he's a boy. He's probably 10, 11 years old at this point. He's not a grown adult. But he says, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. What a scene. A young boy provoking the anger anger of this giant warrior. And this young boy prevailing. Why? Because a man shall not prevail by might. God is the one who causes one to prevail over another because God is the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's in control. And those who contend with Him, as Hannah says here in verse 10, will be shattered. If not here, when they stand before Him in judgment. And this is where it starts getting really real. She says, King, and will exalt the horn of His anointed. There's that term horn again. This God with whom the mightiest of men, the greatest militaries will not prevail, has ordained that the day is coming when all of us will stand before Him and give an account for our thoughts, words, and deeds. And you need to know that your only hope on that day is grace. Is grace. Because all of us have sinned. All of us have broken His commandments. Every one of them. All of us have failed at the greatest commandment. Every single second of our lives. What's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't done that. I haven't done that. None of us have done that for one second of our lives. You think that we can escape judgment on that day? 
only through the one who for every second, every nanosecond of his life did love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is the Lord Jesus in whom all grace is found. And so to that end, Hannah says that God will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Who's she talking about? Now, some people might be tempted to say she's talking about David right there, right? But you'll see that the way that this is written, king and anointed are parallel with one another, so they're actually referring to the same person. That's the way Hebrew prose works, a lot of parallels. And this title, anointed, the Hebrew word here reveals exactly who this is. The Hebrew word that gets translated anointed is Messiah. Messiah. This is the first place we see that word used of the king who is to come in the Old Testament. Of course, the Greek word for this Hebrew word is Christos or Christ. This is talking about Jesus. When Paul was on Mars Hill, that's what he said, that God has selected Jesus to be the judge. The day is set. He will judge the living and the dead. He's the one in whom God's mercy and grace unto sinners and rebels is found. See, God's plan isn't just for a godly king to rule over Israel. His plan is that the Lord Jesus would reign supreme over all. As great and as blessed as, as David would be, David would only be a, a type. David would only be a, a, a foreshadow, a brief glimpse, just a slight glimpse of the one who isn't just a king, but who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Hannah, this woman who just a chapter ago was destitute and hopeless, she was the one who was granted the high honor, the high honor of being the first person in the Bible to use this term, Messiah, of the King who was to come, the Lord Jesus. Who better to give this unique and wonderful prophecy of this Savior Messiah than the woman who sent her only Son to serve God's purposes and minister to the nation in Shiloh. Here again we see a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who was sent to do the Father's will by living a perfectly sinless life and then giving up His life in order to save all who believe on Him. He's the king who will keep the feet of the un, uh, keep the feet of the godly and the ungodly will be judged by. He's the one who will keep the feet of his people, the people who are godly, godly because he has made them godly by clothing them with his own perfect unblemished righteousness and he's the one who will shatter the wicked forever. And so with that in mind, with the idea that they'll be shattered, they'll be silenced. Now is the time to believe and to call on the name of the Lord. The Lord bids us all now to repent and to believe this good news of the salvation that's found in this King, in this Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find that there is not even a drop of God's mercy or grace for that terrible day of judgment apart from believing 
and submitting to this King, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one in whom God's free and gracious gift of salvation is found. Hannah praised God for not only what He has done in the past, not only what He was doing in the present, but also for what He would do in the future. And like her, friends, you and I, you and I should praise God for His salvation. We should praise God for His sovereignty. And we should praise God for the sureness of His purposes being fulfilled because they will all come to pass. And so may we also, like Hannah, rightly fear, rightly praise, rightly know, savingly believe in, and live for the glory of this awesome, sovereign God. And may He be glorified in having rescued and redeemed us from the broad road that leads to destruction to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, You are a God of infinite wonder, glory, majesty, power, splendor, glory. None of us deserve to approach You. And yet, You are also a God of infinite love. You're a God who has loved the unlovable, the sinners who rebelled against You, who defied You. Oh God, we only deserve judgment and You called us into Your marvelous light out of darkness. What a great gift salvation is. What a great gift Christ is. We thank You for Him and we thank You that You have spared us from the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. We thank You that Christ lived the, the perfect sinless life and that His sinlessness has been credited to us we can only begin to wrap our minds around the love and the grace that You have toward us. We can only begin to understand what a, what a good and great this song that, Father, You are. We thank You for this song that Hannah sang to You. And we pray, Lord, that it would be the song of our lives as well. That we would praise You for who You are. We would praise You for Your salvation, for Your sovereignty, and that we would rest secure and praise You for the fact that we can rest secure knowing that all of Your promises and purposes will come to pass and that You are causing all things to work for our good, causing us to grow in Christ-likeness when all we deserve is that everything in our lives work toward our demise and our ultimate judgment before You. What a great gift that You would shower us with Your grace. Teach us, O Lord, to live our lives in light of these truths and to delight in You being our Heavenly Father, to delight in Your will, to delight in Your ways, and to obey You not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of thanksgiving and love. And we pray that in our lives, the light of Christ would be seen in this dark world. And we pray, Lord, that You would 
Use us to bring glory to Your anointed King, the Lord Jesus Christ.